Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another exciting episode of X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chrono skimming classics, and wars, evidently. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and yes, I'm in that hot tub. And I'm TK. You can find me checking the pH to make sure the hot tub's still good on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at DazzlerOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's Dazzler like in the Age of Apocalypse. And I hope you survived this experience, unlike my pants, after that hot tub. Yeah, I told my husband about this issue. And at some point, he just put his finger to my lips and went, shh, I have the internet. I've saved the panels. <laughs> and so I was like... <laughs> Okay. Okay. I get it. This issue lives in infamy. So amazing. We are here to talk about Avengers Volume 4, War of the Realms, written by none other than Jason Aaron. Now, this one has an incredible number of brilliant artists. We have Ed McGuinness, Mark Morales, Justin Posner, Eric Arseniega, Jason Keith, Jason Masters, Stefano Caselli, Frank Martin, and then we have Val Staples exclusively on a cover as well as Letter from VCs Corey Pettit and Joe Caramagna. These issues take up Avengers 18 through 21, as well as Free Comic Book Day 2019, the second and so far final entry in the... Oh no, because they did one this year. Check it out. Free Comic Book Day Avengers. It came back in a big way. So, okay. We have a lot to discuss with this, but before we can go a step further, guys, I opened a book and it was called War of the Realms and I go to the first page and I'm like, give me an Asgardian. Wait, nope. This is just a sexy school teacher. What is happening? And before we can go a step further, guys, we're like 20 issues into this. How do you guys feel about the Squadron Supreme? I dropped Avengers during this point originally. So this is like some of my first times rereading this. And I was like, oh, my God, the Squadron Supreme showed up this early in the Avengers. I was like, holy hell, I didn't know that they didn't just first show up in Heroes Reborn again. I was shocked and surprised in a pleasant way with this. If I had been reading it initially, I would have been like, oh, holy fuck, what's going on with this? But having gone through the whole Heroes Reborn event. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. This is where it started. This is what's going on. But I think that's like one of those things where like hindsight really helps with this book. Whereas if I had read it initially, I'd have been like, why? Why? So I am kind of the opposite experience. I still, one of the big storylines that I have not read for this Avengers run is Heroes Reborn. That is a big blind spot for me and I'm totally okay with that. But I saw that I, this was another arc that I had not, I didn't read War of the Realms to see Squadron Supreme show up. I was very excited. It's funny when either DC or Marvel makes a comically thinly veiled version of a character from the other one. This is just the Justice League done Marvel style, and I think that's really funny. And I 
always enjoy the idea that they're going to be in a particular storyline and then they show up and I get confused because I don't know who I'm looking at or what's going on or if they are going to stay or if they are characters that I can get invested in and start to see growth and development with and that I will be able to recognize as the same characters that I was identifying with should they show up two years later and Nico that's just kind of a send up for you to start talking about all of the absurd versions of the Squadron Supreme that have existed over the years and why we can't just have a consistent one. Yeah. So back in the day, everybody liked to just borrow everybody's characters. It's how we have Power Man and Power Girl. It's why we have Wonder Man and Wonder Woman. It's why we have so many balanced character name ratios across these systems. And the thing that I think fascinates me the most is these analogous characters wind up taking on a life of their own. Way back in the pages of Avengers number 85, we got our first hints of the full squadron, and it's so complex to try and talk about this narrative. We've had so many iterations of these characters. It's easy to get confused. I think the earliest version of Hyperion that most people can think of is the Hyperion that first appears in Avengers 85 with his squadron, and then ultimately, we stop seeing that version of the squadron, like the one that everybody knows after the pages of Squadron Supreme New World Order by Len Kaminsky, Anthony Williams from July 1998. We see them one more time in the terrific Squadron Supreme World Tour. However, these characters sort of, I don't know, just fall into disrepair and disappear as we get several new iterations of the Squadron over the years. I know that a lot of people might remember the earliest version from Avengers number 69, who was actually a construct created by the Grandmaster. He was ultimately not such a good guy, but to kind of zero in a little bit more on what a lot of people might remember a little bit clearer is either the Squadron from the JMS Squadron Supreme Edgy Max line run, which I enjoyed but has aged kind of poorly, or they may remember the Squadrons from Avengers by Hickman or the immediately following Secret Wars Squadron from 2016, both of which are not this squadron yeah yeah my squadron supreme knowledge is very limited i know this version of squadron from reading heroes were born and you know like the exiles version of hyperion <laughs> like king hyperion he's the best at being the worst obviously <laughs> yeah oh yeah so i'm like you know seeing hyperion is an evil character knowing the exiles version first i was like okay this fits you know so it was always my version but i get the more i've learned about the squadron the more i want to read some of these stories because it's supposed to be really great morality tales that there's so many different versions it's so crazy confusing like it's so hard to believe that the power princess first appeared in a defenders comics absolutely and like for me i think the first time i encountered them was in the ultimates universe again i was just really tickled by oh this is just the justice league like that's so funny to me i mean like i know i've seen more of them and read more of them but the next time i really started to think about them as like potential characters that i could get into was uh, when hyperion was in the times out storylines with thor where they're both rocking the beards and I'm not going to go into detail about my feelings about how hot they both look all the time. It definitely looks like they're auditioning for Twink Hunter. Yeah, thank you. I just didn't want to say it. I didn't want to have to be the one to get myself cut for saying that. But (laughs) 
as soon as I realized what I was looking at in the pages of Aaron's Avengers, I thought, cool. And then it very quickly became clear that these are not the Squadron Supreme that I had known before. And then I started to think, wait, the Squadron Supreme that I'd known before? Is there just one? And then I started to look a little bit into it and realize that I probably never encountered the same Squadron Supreme twice. I have no like grounding in these characters because there's no consistent version of these characters and now I really just would like to see somebody get an opportunity to establish a definitive Squadron Supreme that can go somewhere and do something. You know, you would ask me what role the Squadron had played previously and it's unfortunate but they're never not cops. Yeah. They're just they're just never not cops and I would love to see what these characters could be because okay, there's some really fascinating parallels in this incredible first issue Avengers number 18 Crisis on 10 Realms first of all let me fucking tell you how funny that title is for an <laughs> issue starring the squadron <laughs> that is Jason Aaron's best joke ever so great job there my my comic writer man I don't you I don't were know. gonna say my king and you should because it's king shit yeah, I kind of was I was yeah. gonna kind of say my king it's, it's yeah so it's gross. really fucking funny it's great and that sense of humor is important for the squadron supreme because again they are literally just the justice league and that's funny but also this book has to be that funny from time to time while doing all the really big you know sometimes emotional storylines that it's doing nathan i don't know if you remember reading heroes reborn but how incredible is the parallel between mark in the classroom here and mark in the classroom in heroes reborn it's amazing because he took such a dark turn in that heroes reborn verse where he still at this point is not lost to the fascism of it all and he's not quite as stuffy as he was in heroes reborn but like heroes reborn seems like if like the reagan 80s had like gone wrong and taken over and like that's what was still going on what a horrifying thought now (laughs) nighthawk is such a fascinating character because at one point nighthawk was just sort of like a generic white guy with very little beyond being a bruce wayne kind of parallel and he has transformed so powerfully to become a much more dynamic character by giving him a sense of culture in his blackness he has an opportunity to take this trope which is frequently reserved for white guys industrial billionaire and it makes it so much more interesting to see that voice come through in a new way now i've been lucky enough to experience a very similar version to this through the Supreme Power Max line, which is, you know, really an interesting take. He's had miniseries there, and I know he's had some miniseries outside of that as well. But whether it's Kyle Richmond as essentially Batman and Nighthawk, or it's Zarda as Wonder Woman in Power Princess, these trio, these characters represent something so core to this, and opening on them, I think, is really the only way you could bring in a Justice League story. Yeah, I love how they show the trinity of it all. I love this Kyle Richmond. I read a lot of defenders in my early comics here so like i'm familiar with the older nighthawk much more than any other squadron supreme member but this version of kyle richmond is fascinating as hell he's so nuanced and not goofy and campy like the old nighthawk and i love how jason aaron kind of gave everybody a little bit of a civics lesson you know if they didn't know that the delegate from washington dc in the house doesn't really have voting privileges now they do truly i hear and very much respect what you guys are saying I have sort of all 
already forgotten what my initial takes were seeing these characters as soon as I realized that this was an entirely new Squadron Supreme and anything that I had sort of absorbed about them previously was probably not going to apply. I could still be surprised to discover that part of all the storyline is reckoning with how there have been so many different versions of this team and these characters. I sort of doubt that it's going to be that. So it was a bit of a letdown slash big adjustment of my perception to realize that this is kind of more of a Coulson-Mephisto joint where these guys are pawns than it is a how do we reckon with Squadron Supreme becoming a part of this new Avengers taking over all parts of the Marvel Universe story that we're doing. I came from far away and was raised by farmers. I have a comic <laughs> vision. My name is Mark Milton. I will kill for America. I love beer. <laughs> I love how Zarda is like, what if we took a Wonder Woman and made her even more horny? Yes, yes. I wonder why they haven't before. I'm here. I'm here for it. I'm so here for it because I love the sex positivity in it. It's not treated as a joke. I love it. Yeah. She loves who she is. And it's a little unfortunate that we see this bit of Coulson, you know, after we see the tremendous introduction of you know, two of my favorite squadron members, one of whom gets treated beautifully in Heroes Reborn, the other who gets treated poorly. We have Blur, who thank God he's not Wizard anymore. <laughs> And we have Dr. Spectrum, who is one of the coolest versions of Green Lantern ever. We see the squadron take on Frost Giants, which is great because, you know, having most people take on Frost Giants bothers me. That's a Thor level, you know, character, but this team works. In the programming center, Coulson calls for Zarda to be wilder and more arrogant and have more lust, which I like to think of it, knowing ultimately from the end of this issue that all of this is the work of Mephisto. I do imagine that most of Coulson's thoughts are a little bit more driven by Mephisto than Coulson is led to believe. And thusly, there's something about the devil creating Zarda that is not the same thing as a man creating Zarda that I am much more okay with. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I can see that for sure. I like that idea conceptually. If somebody were to write this squadron supreme again and try and make them a thing in the main Marvel universe, I think that would be a really important point to get down on paper, which is that they were created by the devil that those archetypes are <laughs> Satan <laughs> archetypes. Yeah. The Justice League is demonic. Uh, yes, they absolutely are. I Injustice. <laughs> that would be a really cool setup for them long-term in the Marvel Universe. Here, our Justice League was made by the devil. I think it's, again, it's funny. It's funny as hell. But you can build on it and you can make them real characters. They have to stick around for a while and remain the same people. Doesn't it remind you of what your mother's second cousin once removed always said? <laughs> exactly. Carry on, Agent Coulson. So all of the creepy programming stuff is really fascinating because when we see Nighthawk, I fall madly in love with Nighthawk. Nighthawk in his programming and training situation is under the impression that he's above this and Coulson's like, yes, thank you figured it out. Yes. <laughs> I think everything about the machinations of this maybe works a little bit better than perhaps the issue itself. I love that we're doing this in trade because economy of page being what it is, I would be frustrated reading this monthly. I loved this issue. The art is, there isn't a bad line in this whole trade. 
right? Every piece of art in this trade is stunning. But I would have found myself frustrated. For instance, that issue, issues 18, 19, and 20 for that matter, are contained in the War of the Realms omnibus. Yes, they fight a few frost giants, but what the fuck does that have to do with War of the Realms? And I think that was my biggest thing going into this was it was surprising to see War of the Realms on the cover and then start with Squadron Supreme with initially my thought was I I imagine they have something to do with a realm that I just haven't been aware of this whole time but as we dug into it and then when we got to the end and you see Mephisto now I just am kind of confused as to why this is part of anything and I don't know that the remaining parts of this arc answered that I don't know that any of it is bad it's just we've had these three very tight very clear arcs prior to this that feel really like they're meant to be really easy to read and be accessible to everybody be enjoyable to fans old and new make very clear who all of our Avengers are what they're about what their powers are this is where we start to veer into you've got to be a comics person to really get into and get through this arc I love your takes DK on this because you don't have the future knowledge you're exactly where I would be if I was reading this without that it knowing about Heroes Reborn and having gone through it and read it and really enjoyed the, the arc and it was I thought it was really well done like I'm like oh cool this is where it starts but if I didn't know about all of that if I didn't have that foreknowledge I would be what the fuck is this why are we bringing the squadron supreme in this makes no sense I guess I will say that if this I keep talking about this book as the thing that can be a really fantastic intro for especially people coming off of the MCU who are fascinated by where these characters came from or what they look like in the comic books or what comic book fandom and readership is like taking this step into oh it actually if you continue reading comics inevitably you will get somewhere where you are confused and stuff is insane and doesn't make sense and you think you are reading an arc that's about the Asgardians but then it turns out that it's a whole thing like you start the first issue and it's a weird Justice League analog that's comics readership like if you are if you're coming from the MCU and all you've seen are you know Disney plus shows and movies you need to make your peace with the fact that at some point you are going to find yourself in this exact situation where you just have no idea what's going on or why the thing that you're reading is a part of the you know arc that it says that it's a part of so in that way I have no idea if this is intentional but this book as a primer for being a comic book fan continues to do its job I think this is a pretty forgivingly confusing situation that you become a part of when you read this so it really is a good intro to this aspect of comic book readership and fandom and it's sort of in that regard that this is the first time that the title probably lost steam for me as well Nathan I might have quit here as well and I think I picked up reading a bit later on in part because issue 19 is a solo feature on a character Gorilla Man. Now I've mentioned that I like this character and I did a little bit of my standard Nico homework. Let me tell you, I was mistaken. It turns out I do have the first appearance of this character because I own all six issues of Nick Fury's Howling Commandos, (laughs) which is basically what if Nick Fury ran a team of Marvel monsters (laughs) and it's really, really wild. And it ran for six issues in 2006 at first 
just debuted around Halloween. I worked at a comic shop at the time. So I wound up with a lot of it. And he would then move over to the Agents of Atlas later that year, where he would run with the Agents of Atlas for quite a while. Now, Gorilla Man is a really interesting character because by the time he betrays the Avengers, he's had about 100 appearances. After his betrayal of the Avengers, he has about 15 more. But finding out that he has been working secretly alongside the vampires, even though he's supposed to be helping to get the Russians to give information to the Avengers. It's all very confusing, but ultimately, Gorilla Man's working for Dracula, and it all plays out across a War of the Realms commercial. (laughs) I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. How do you guys feel about all of this? I mean, I am all for Ursa Major and Gorilla Man just like beating on each other in a very sexual way, but that's not what I got. So I'd love to know what you guys thought about the War of the Realms commercial that featured a bunch of Avengers. When you have like the shows in the same universe, like the Golden Girls universe, right? It feels like like one of those episodes where like Lance just shows up at the Westons for like two seconds and there's no reason, but you're like, oh, cool. It's a Golden Girls crossover. Like, look, 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 there's Blanche. And now you're going to watch Nurses that night because <laughs> what if they show up on Nurses? <laughs> I like the feature on Gorilla Man. Again, I bounced around all over this book. So it's a character I've seen in the future doing stuff that I'm like, oh, how'd we get here? And this was a good laying some groundwork issue. We have lost the rhythm of having a flashback to 1 million BC and getting a BC Avenger. That probably would have been my preference for a feature that was removed from whatever the arc is. That to me was a bit of a miss. I was really liking that that setup of visiting one of the million BC Avengers and we have a bunch left to go over. That War of the Realms is happening in the background in a way that very much is a commercial or like a you're only getting the previously on flashes of something. It's not my least favorite convention. I like it. Everything doesn't need to have the same force to the storyline. We can kind of have ones where they're more character focused and the big beats of the arc just kind of happen in the background or in little bits and pieces. I think the fact that that is happening here on top of the fact that we've put the Squadron Supreme in the mix on top of the fact that we have veered away from what seemed like a very consistent return to the Million BC Avengers every few issues or once an arc. All of that together did just kind of make this a more chaotic, less... The velocity was just a little bit lost here. And again, that is a part of being a comics reader and being a part of fandom. Sometimes you just get stopped at a certain point and you have to do a little work as a reader to get through something before you can move forward again at the pace that you kind of have been expecting. The focus on Squadron Supreme and then even the Agents of Wakanda versus the Avengers themselves just seemed weird. Like the Avengers were in the book, but they were kind of not really important to the book, just like War of Realms was in the book and not really important to the book. I did love how they were able to take most of the population of New York and put it in the Celestial's intestines, its guts, basically. That was interesting. 
I'm not going to bitch about how I can't believe that that works uh, in terms of space and population because this is a comic book. But I, I really, I was mathing super hard as I'm looking at, and also they're like, we got thousands of people. You missed the other millions that were there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> like thousands of people out of millions of New York. That's not most of the population. <sighs> it's most of the population that fit in the celestial. <laughs> well, you know, Scott and, you know, had his own little weird realm, too, that he was taking care of in New York. So, okay. Yeah. And it's from a really interesting spotlight on a character that didn't really tie too much into the arc around it, that we go to another spotlight on a really interesting character. But I don't think this issue has anything to do with what's going on around it. I almost wonder if this was a matter of timing and this was going to be a big She-Hulk issue and it, it just sort of worked out because don't get me wrong Jason Aaron writing Daredevil is like a gift <laughs> and Jason Aaron writing Daredevil as Heimdall is like the ultimate gift but like and you know Jen and Matt great but like I loved a lot of this issue. I loved a lot of the visuals of it. But again, this was not a War of the Realms issue. No, I, I love this issue as a She-Hulk issue. I love how it gives her a little bit more depth into what's been going on with her, what her mental state is. The poor girl went through it. She died when Thanos came back for Civil War II. And then she's just been on a, a real tough, real huge journey ever since then. So I loved seeing that play out in her mind. I did love seeing all the different forms of She-Hulk and you know god damn it I need her to wear Asgardian armor just all the time now because that was amazing yeah just I got used to the first three arcs being such a strict structure and formula and I probably would have a huge problem with this had I been reading it at the time because that's now like a year of my life plus that I'm reading the Avengers every month and you know we're sticking to this really clear format and then we just go off the rails here where even though we're doing an arc and it's War of the Realms, everything is really all over the place. We don't have the million BC flashback. We're now doing spotlights on people that are only tangentially important to the arc, which is itself only tangentially important because the mix is just really shifted. I still really enjoy it. Yeah, Daredevil also drawn like just a brick shithouse here. Cosmically enormous thought. It's all fun. It's still fun. That's the great thing about this. Everything I have read is always fun. And I think that the character work is still there. I understand Gorilla Man better than I did before I read that issue. And that doesn't mean nothing to me. Knowing that I will continue with this character for a while, having seen him in other stuff, that's a win for me to know more about him. Same thing with She-Hulk. I've already read World War She-Hulk's which we'll get to at the time, but because of issues I have with the writing there, I feel like um, I feel like this issue in particular, being closer to that one, would have really benefited the World War She-Hulk storyline because this helps flesh Jen's mind out for me a little bit at a point where I maybe didn't need it for where we are in this book, but overall it's an important thing for the character and for her being part of the Avengers, and we know she goes on to get her own series, so this is good character work and I love that, and I love that this book never stops being fun. It can be very serious, but not take itself too seriously. These are all challenges that a lot of authors, especially who have to write something 
something really big and long term are not able to meet. So I can forgive that this one went off the rails a little bit in other ways for me. I love how this conversation between Matt, who, oh my God, that Daredevil costume with the celestial star pattern on it. Mm. It's too good. It's just yeah. too good. Like, mm. But I love how this conversation really foreshadows a lot of the next 30 issues to come, but but not this war or the wars yet to come, like through the right hell race and the drawing of the heralds and the sea trials and the fury of Kanchu. I'm like the red rise of America's mightiest heroes. Like this is like literally he had planned out like his next like five, six arcs. This continues all the way almost through issue 50, at least of what he's done. So like, wow, he had some really long term plans for what he was going to do with you. And I would be remiss if I didn't add just one cute thing about this Daredevil moment that I really love in conjunction with coverage that the three of us do together. The same issue, War of the Realms Omega, which turns Jane into Valkyrie. In it, Heimdall, who resumes his job as Guardian of the Bifrost, gives Daredevil billy clubs made from splinters of Yadrasil so that he'll always have a little bit of that power because it would be unfair to give a mortal the sight of a god and then completely take it away. <sighs> okay, so good. Can't even. And I, uh, War of the Realms is kind of a magical time. I ultimately, big Thor guy, and I just love War of the Realms. It was a lot of fun. And a lot of fun also, blade biting people <laughs> to make them better. If we can just constantly bite people we don't like until they're nicer, mm. I'm signing up for that job. And I guess somehow they loaded him up with the, the cure. And, you know, the, the vampires aren't typically venomous. Like the... <laughs> The teeth are there so you can extract, not deposit. I don't care. Again, that's funny. That's fun. Yeah. I love the idea that that even could be a thing and a character trait. I would love to see a Blade or even like Daughter of Blade that goes around doing like, I gotta, okay, I gotta go to my guy, get whatever the cure is for whatever the problem is and bite everybody until they're fixed. I would read a lot of that. It's so fun. I love it. Like it is the opposite of She-Hulk shirt. It is not no fun. It is amazing fun. All fun. All fun. All play. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast Sexy Hour. I'm Nico, and I'm only covered by a hammer and a hot tub. We're going to be bringing the sexy. I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I lost the train. But you guys, Avengers 21, the day oh, after a day, unlike any other. I When I first read this at the time, was convinced it was like it never went too far. But I was like, it's going too far. Like, I mean, my search history kind of laughs at it but like i'm like oh this is going too far and i'm like but it's never going far enough and then nobody brought bathing suits and then avengers and i want to celebrate jason aaron for sexualizing these three men in a way that i feel like i tend to only see women be sexualized in string bikinis they're not like i am resting my muscles they're like we're in a hot tub it was a hard day like yes so hot uh, spank bang forever definitely the tub of hotness and unlike tony stark i really would like to watch thor playing with his hammer in front of me i really also appreciate that there is a homoeroticism just 
to the idea of these beautiful bodies on display, but there's no stupid jokes. And really, these three especially are never coded as gay. Anytime they have a moment of sexual tension or homoerotic silliness, it really is just like, it's inevitable that when you have two insanely muscled men touching like this or fighting like this, at some point, it's gonna seem a little gay. But we don't have to then have an issue that is, you know, a little more personal, a little more vulnerable in which we try and force that stuff in a way that it's just never seen in the comics. This really did a good job of saying like you can be gorgeous teammate friend platonic people still have moments that seem kind of stupidly gay and we're not going to be like oh gotta reckon with that now it just life is funny like that sometimes. And you know not for nothing but the Olympic Village likes to smash and like anyone who's ever worked for Disney you know your area likes to smash and anybody who's ever lived in a dorm situation there's always that floor and that room where everybody loves to smash and there's really nothing wrong with a celebration of physicality of you know even if they don't get sexual even that it's just comfortable nudity people who know me know that I would probably rather not wear clothes most of the time it's a thing and like you know I I don't know I just think this page this these panels it's always felt to me like Jason Aaron was like yeah I'm gonna make the editors a little uncomfortable and I don't know that the editors got uncomfortable because look how it came out but this felt somehow daring 30 years too late to be daring don't get me wrong but this was somehow daring in a way that really resonates with why I care about this book even the one part that I both loved and hated which was Robbie getting in with a shirt on which to me the justification of no I feel like I do not want you you fucking Greek or uh, Asgard gods to see me without my shirt on I get that that insecurity especially when it's like a kid who's barely 20 or whatever there's a characterization that I really appreciate and I love that Aaron so fully conceives of this character and his place on the team and what's going on with him. And we get so much stuff from, you know, between him and Carol. This is a great issue for Robbie. That note of like, I feel insecure is a really good one. It's a real one, but I would happily have sacrificed it for Robbie to have that moment of feeling sexy in the hot tub with everybody else. I probably would have preferred that moment. I would have preferred to see a depiction of Robbie body that is very dissimilar from Thor's or Cap's but still in its own way is sexy. I do not think that there was any intention to desexualize a Latino man but there was definitely an opportunity to give him the same treatment that everybody else got and while I think not doing so was done out of love for the character I think it could have been done also out of love for the character in a way that still really respected him. Respect him by sexualizing him. I also love the choice of pretty conservative bathing suit for Carol that that really fits the character that she's become. Yeah, that I buy completely. It's cute, but also, you know, maybe not realizing he's a grown up. But when, you know, Hulk comes in and Carol's like, oh, no, I've got to cover Robbie Reyes's eyes because he's my son that I've adopted. It's cute, but it's also not. So I don't know. I have a weird relationship with it as well, because there's something about Robbie needs a mom. Like, not that all men need a woman to take care of them, but Robbie has had to do so much on his own. And sometimes we just need a big, right? Like, sometimes we all just need to be the little, even 
even if we're the strongest big there is, sometimes even it just it helps to get clarity. And Robbie is at a place in his life where he's been the big despite being a little for way too long. And he needs someone to love him and care for him. And it doesn't need to necessarily be any one person. Look how Cap showed him comfort at the end of the last arc where he held him on the floor. And that's in exactly the same family I'm thinking of. So the problem I think becomes finding the proper balance for Carol playing this older sister or frequently, you know, maternal role. I would never trade that moment of them on the boat for a million years. Like if Marvel said, Nico, you get to design the ultimate Robbie Reyes omnibus. If they said you can't use anything from Avengers, I would be like, but those four pages, right? Because what's better than a mom teaching her son to possess a boat to fight a fire shark? Like, I just literally don't know how to say it. But like, that was the sweetest superhero moment I've ever seen. And it just made me so happy because neither one of them asked for their powers, but both of them know that it's the right thing to do to save the people they love. And I just love it so much. Well, and the other thing I love about it is that Robbie doesn't need a mom. Robbie needs a mentor, but it would be really great for Robbie to have a mom and to have a maternal moment or to have a paternal moment. He really needs these people just to make sure that he knows how to use his powers and he knows which direction to be pointed in. That is essential. But inevitably, the mentorship moment has this quality of of care and love to it. To me, that's what always shines through and what feels so important is that everybody that takes an interest in him does go that extra step to show not just a care for his education, but for for him as a person and to show him some kind of affection that goes beyond just you're doing a good job as a superhero. To me, this is probably like one of the best written mentorships in comics that I've read so far and I haven't read all of it. Hopefully I'm not going to eat my words for saying this, but like it's almost as well done to me as the Kate and Aurora relationship early on. And, And I like seeing that trope sort of like turned on its head a little bit with Carol and Robbie. If for no other reason, it's that thing that TK, ever since you said it, I've brought it up in every room. This idea of a third age group. Like, yeah, you know what? Everybody on both sides has to start looking out for the third rail because there is something so excitingly dangerous to standard plot formula about having somebody who dually exists in adulthood and childhood, you know, because the duality of it has always even been oh a kid who had to grow up too fast when the truth of it is there's a balance and I am so eager in the ways that these characters interact and how Robbie I don't know Robbie and Blade is such an exciting pair and like it's just such a good time reading this book when Robbie's on the page because you can channel that excitement every second is like a roller coaster when you're Robbie and reading him feels that way I mean reading him has felt that way to me since the first time I ever read Robbie I just I think he is somehow one of the greatest vehicles into the Marvel Universe. And Aaron writes him with a joy like Robbie were his own child. Like, really? Now that I'm done crying, Black Panther fights uh, the squadron. And that's exciting. If for no other reason, this manages to give us two black men talking to one another from positions of authority on page, which sadly is still at a dearth. But, you know, so exciting to see both Black Panther and Nighthawk interact as powerful men of color where even if Black Panther's skin is not showing it's not much of a question and also let's always have brew references on page shall we yeah no I I love that little bit between Black Panther and Nighthawk a lot I love seeing how the 
squadron's gonna kind of grow in this arc. Like, okay, I'm I'm seeing some of it now. Like, you know, I don't love how it ties into Coulson because I, I just think Coulson was such a like lovable character. Maybe not lovable, but like, you know, noble at least character before and this rebirth after his death at the hands of Deadpool, like just seems very much like maybe he's not even Coulson at all. It's just uh Avatar of the Devil. Yeah. I have never been a big follower of six one six Coulson. So I am not really clear what he's been doing or if he is somebody that I would super invest in. So I don't have as much attachment to what's going on here. I guess I I'm looking at the really big picture of the one million BC Avengers and then Mephisto seeming to be these two still overhanging things that we're always going to be reckoning with as we go through these arcs. And I don't hate it at this point, especially not really sure what to expect or really how to think of any of it. I'm just kind of along for the ride. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. Comics don't always have to foreshadow and, you know, predict themselves in that way where Daredevil is telling you specifically that we're going to be getting a Trial of Conchu arc that we definitely do get very soon. That's okay. It doesn't always have to be that. I guess sometimes it's just difficult to look at all the pieces that are on the board and have any understanding of of what I'm looking at. This is, it's an issue, what, 57 now? And like Mephisto is still the, an overarching, you know, antagonist for the Avengers. So like we're going on like six, like we're going on 60 issues where Mephisto is going to be the main attraction, the main thing that's going on. And it's always done in a, an exciting, in a, a way that's, you know, not so overpowering where, you know, because if Mephisto comes in and really does the action himself, he's going to overpower it himself. But he's he's playing all these little machinations He's like the Avengers Mr. Sinister. And, you know, I'm kind of here for it. Knowing what we know about what's coming up with Judgment Day and how we started with the Celestials and how it feels like that's tying into the Million BC Avengers, Mephisto really does feel like the one thing that I don't really see how how it's a part of the puzzle. But actually, you framing him as a Mr. Sinister-esque character gives me an idea of how you could still have something like the Celestials, which really seemed like a significantly bigger, more important threat than a kind of hapless devil. How said hapless devil could legitimately play a part in all this that was really important, even if we're eventually going to get to creators of planets and galaxies and, and makers of superheroes. What if Mephisto was controlling the Celestials? I mean, there's like, like this has got to go somewhere big, right? Either, yeah. like, either Mephisto's doing something with the Celestials or the Celestials cause Mephisto. And that's the thing, you can't ever convince me that what if Mephisto is controlling any celestial but like one that is in hell and somehow even weaker which (laughs) but I could believe that a dying celestial on earth made a deal with Mephisto (gasps) Mephisto everybody Fisto and that now binds the celestials to something I could believe that you know it just takes a moment of weakness from anything to make an unbreakable deal the you know the the celestials aren't magic the way Mephisto still is <laughs> so I feel like, you know, they're just much more big space. So, yeah, I could see it. Man, man, do I love the idea that a dying celestial stupidly made a deal with Mephisto on Earth during 1 million BC, and that's how he keeps coming back. I mean, I love something like that, too. You definitely, you could convince me. Just because it seems like we are driving towards 
celestials, maybe even going bigger than that into like Beyonders territory. The fact that we're seeing flashes of Miracle Man being in the mix. Sometimes this version of the devil just doesn't seem like the same thing in terms of how you're going to get me to care. But yes, an unbreakable deal would definitely be a way to do it. And I would love to get into the overlap of science and technology and magic world in which something like this, something like a deal between a celestial and Mephisto is fundamental to our understanding of the Marvel Universe. That could be really, really cool. However, the perm has to go <laughs> the perm has to go he looks like craven with a sunburn i can't do this okay. i just can't do this he does and also like like cat from red dwarf too a little bit <laughs> a little bit yes i just can't do this everything else he's doing mephisto mephisto whatever he needs to do mckixto i'm here <laughs> but i can't take the mate there's something about a really like wild haired devil that feels very bad girl a la X-Men 2099. <laughs> I just can't do. You know what I mean? I could do it if it were campier all the time and he got more. Uh, calling him sinister just killed me because now I'm like, that's make him that. Just do that. To steal all those beats. Yeah, making him really camp and silly and stupid. This is the look for that. But the story is like, oh no, I'm actually like, I've got good plots in the mix and i want to believe it's gonna get stupider than that but i feel like the only thing it could possibly do is get stupider mephisto just dead drops onto the marvel universe yes. <laughs> that's what i want oh my god it's all i've ever needed he gets in a cape oh. off with mr sinister <laughs> yes oh my god and everybody's doing their best devil they're just hissing at each other <laughs> nightcrawler decides to walk onto the stage for a minute and is just like ja not part of this but and just like kind of stammers away like i hate myself no i love oh. this 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 is what i want i this is the level of camp that i need from this particular dude and i i just seeing chess pieces and, uh, no not it for me uh, yeah now i really want mephisto and sinister to lip sync for their life but it's kind of like in the bad place where they do karaoke where it's like historical speeches they do karaoke over <laughs> so like yeah i love seeing those chess pieces for one reason well two reasons i loved seeing the appearance of supremor and starbrand as chess pieces yeah. that was amazing also i kept being like holy shit jason aaron totally gets my fandom and that's a sweet tooth ref nope it's odin okay uh. so i was really excited about a sweet tooth reference for a second because my my inner indie comic is a canadian hockey comic so i just breathe Jeff Lemire, but... I loved seeing Mark there. I've become such a huge fan of Moon Knight after the Moon Knight run by Joe McKay. So, like, I'm like, yay, it's my Mark. And then I know he goes through some really rough shit. So, I'm not really looking forward to getting to that. But you know what? But knowing what he comes out the other side, it yeah. actually feels like a trial. And it's, I'm I'm excited to reread it. I really am. Oh, yeah. I'm here for it. Like, and I'm sure it'll be great. But I like, I'm like, my boy, I don't want to see him go through that. I 
had less excitement reading something about the real world Gulf of Mexico oil complications. This was not the story I needed in free comic book day 2019, knowing what 2020 would become. This was sort of, you know, especially with all the pipeline stuff that was going on in the real world. And, you know, let's just say it fracking bad. And, you know, let's go with that. And because one of the things that is so powerful about this narrative is that Hyperion does it all for country and beer, he's punching someone trying to stop essentially if you don't look at you know things like fracking as eco-terrorism you're not really weighting both people's crimes with the same with the same gravity right so to namor he is stopping eco-terrorism and here comes hyperion in the name of america stopping namor stopping eco-terrorism and fuck if that's not a metaphor for the politics that dominated this era i don't know what is i love hyperion as this not even twist I, I want to say twisted reflection of what America has become. Oh, cool. I got to stop this guy from, you know, trying to keep the waters clean. And and I'm looking at Namor and I'm like, oh, you just want to like keep the water clean. You like this battle doesn't do it for me, but I do love what it kind of sets up as a conversation. Yeah, I'm always interested in the idea of Namor as an eco-terrorist who is correct to be doing that because things are so bad that that's all that's left. And I I feel like, unfortunately, he's never gotten the generous page time to take on that role and let us all kind of reflect on the fact that we are destroying our planet and there's not a lot of super heroics that can justify that. This version of Hyperion feels like the right person to pit against him in terms of showing how not in the right we are about our environmental politics. But I guess my my biggest uh, disappointment is has nothing to do with this. It's just that Namor doesn't get enough page time. Usually when he does, it's beats that I love, like his being the male Emma Frost. But Namor deserves a really good book. And, you know, he deserves to be talking to people like Ross Solomon and doing environmental shit and being the person whose concern is the 70% of our planet that we constantly just treat like our toilet. To me, that's an amazing book that I've been talking about this with people since I was in college and reading comics. And the fact that it really still hasn't come to fruition and things keep getting worse and worse with the environment, I just, I want somebody to do it. You know what I love? What? I love that the fucking Shi'ar show the fuck up everywhere, wherever the fuck they want, whenever they fucking want, because Jason Aaron is number one i'm not here to pick a fight with anybody but jason aaron writes my shiar like i love the asgard shiar war it's one of my favorite arcs of all time i love everything he okay no i love a majority of what he has done maintaining the internal quality of the phoenix as a yonic interpretation of life and death i don't so much need the phallic reinvention or the masculinization of the phoenix by way of quentin choir it was fine to keep it predominantly an all-female identity i know that there were certainly stories in the 80s and 90s that paralleled that with male characters but I'm a pretty big fan of most of Aaron's Phoenix with the exception of ultimately I have felt Echo has not paid off sorry about it and it's not too much of a spoiler she had a mini series with Echo Phoenix song Echo song Phoenix song Phoenix Echo and that was its title that whole thing so you know it's what it is but I love when he uses the fucking Shi'ar he really gets my Shi'ar it's like him and Claremont I love his Shi'ar they are just whenever they show up I'm just like plume me bitch yeah but can we 
we just spend some time gushing on Steve Rogers as Corsair? Captain Corsair is <laughs> the hottest Corsair. fucking pirate of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love this little team there. Obviously, I love seeing Carol looking a lot like Binary. Like, I'm like, mm, yes, Star Jammer's Carol. That's like my jam, Carol. Got Hulk looking sexy as fuck. Oh, my God. It's Thor is a brood. And I believe that's Yarnborn on his shoulder because he's not worthy if he's a brood. So even though he just oh, got his God. hammer back, he couldn't have it here in canon. What is the thing on Jen's shoulder? And why is its nose shaped like a penis? I think that's Carol's creature pet thing. I thought it was a cat usually, but... Maybe that's a cat. Oh, okay. Uh, I've seen cats before, and I have questions, but I'm not here to judge anything from potential birth defects to artistic mistakes. I don't know. The nose is definitely in this shot, so... I thought you were looking at, like, the weird dildo plunger that she has in her hands, but no, I was like, oh, you're talking about the little weird monkey cat. Yeah. (laughs) With the dick nose. I had the same confusion. (laughs) I, too, was like, do you mean the dick hand or the dick nose? (laughs) A brood Thor, I just can't even conceive. It is, like... It is such a perfect combination of so many things I love in a way that I'm like, does Jason Aaron just read my diary? (laughs) Dear diary, today I ran out of Thors to sexualize, so I started thinking up ones that I couldn't sexualize. (laughs) But But then, whoops, I sexualized them. (laughs) I tried really hard. Brood Thor, Mr. Monopoly Thor, Thor in the video for TLC's Waterfalls. Oh God, it's getting sexy again. So I really... Oh, Elvira Thor is incredible. Incredible and it's everything. Uh so Planet Star Brand, I love it. It looks like it's from a really deluxe Marvel pool set, but I really love Planet Star Brand. I'm so excited to actually learn about Starbrand because I, I came back in the later part where Starbrand was pretty much already there in a version. So I, I'm really excited to get to see what 616 Starbrand is all about. I am very curious how we got to the little JonBenet Starbrand <laughs> that we're working with now. Planet Starbrand is a weird stop off before I get that explanation, but the Starbrand is very important apparently and I'm ready to find out So the book ends of this story, which is really just Namor fights the squadron and the Avengers are in space and maybe the car is going crazy during the exorcism, which does come up in the next arc. And it's one of my favorite arcs of the whole series. But Tony Stark is somewhere in what could be the same Siberian wilderness that hatched Anderson Cooper. And he is fighting, again, wolves that could be Anderson Cooper. And out of nowhere, he sees Mjolnir and he's like up oh, i know that hammer oh nope i don't know that hammer it's his dad and it's the avengers 1 million bc and i'm shocked that his first line of dialogue wasn't hey look you guys are basically an avengers you don't have an iron man i'm gonna join the fact that tony stark wasn't immediately like you guys need me is the only thing that didn't work for me about this i did not realize that of the paradigm of avengers it never once occurred to me that there was no tony stark because phoenix is even a stand-in for wanda so like It just never even occurred to me that there wasn't a Tony Stark. I mean, I think... 
you might give it to some combination of the Sorcerer Supreme and the Black Panther. I really don't know where they go with this, so... But the idea that this is so long ago that you're before even, like, the Bronze Age and the Iron Man is essentially the the spirit of invention and man's mastery of technology at a time when we just simply haven't yet was actually one of the things that I liked about the Million BC Avengers and I kind of thought might be a point of reckoning. And I had wondered about that having read the following arc in which we do see Tony start to reckon a little bit with the past of the 1 million BC Avengers. So this was an interesting wrinkle in all of that. I'm always down for a good time travel story. This rocks. I can't wait to see where this goes because I'm starting to really love the 1 million BC Avengers and to see like my least favorite Avenger kind of go up against them. Be cool. I thought I loved this run and then I started covering it with you guys and I realized that what I enjoyed was the idea of it. And until I started sitting down to really dissect and break down this story into its components, I don't think I really understood that this is a blueprint for a universe. This is legitimately a masterwork. I don't think every page works. I do not think every idea works. And I don't think every panel is perfect. But I think that what Jason Aaron is doing is the sort of blueprintery that we saw Chris Claremont attempt for the X-Men line. But instead, we're seeing it on a grandiose scale. It's hard not to notice that the age of writers and artists that brought in alongside Jason Aaron some of the biggest ideas to ever come out of the Marvel offices. Ideas like AVX to whatever success it was. Or the era of Bendis, Brubaker, and Fraction. It is notable that he is the last man standing and that that whole generation of writers has at least in some part moved on. Whereas Jason Aaron is consistently and considerably expanding his Marvel Marvel portfolio by the year. I'm so excited to dial into the next few arcs with you guys. But more than anything, I would love to get where you guys feel about this title, roughly all said and done between tie-ins and proper number issues, about 25 issues in. For me, it's the thing that I was saying earlier. This is the book to pick up if you are not a big comics fan, or maybe you're a big comics fan, but only a specific type of comic or, you know, some other slice of Marvel. This is such a solid introduction to the entire 616 universe and beyond. We're getting multiversal with all of this. This is just a really good introduction to a lot of the Marvel universe. And for old readers, I think sometimes getting back to basics and revisiting where characters and teams are can be really fun. And it's most fun when you feel really confident that you're getting a reset that you can sink your teeth into into and that will take you into the future should you choose to go. If you start reading this with issue one, I think you really are reading what is going to be the future of Marvel Comics for a very long time that encompasses so much of the characters, teams, and potential that's coming up. It's just really exciting and I really would recommend it to everyone. Even if you think it's not your cup of tea, it will serve you well as a reader and I think it really can be pretty enjoyable no matter what. It's really pretty much a flagship title for Marvel because it's really sprung off a lot of ideas and events and crossovers, even going up to the Avengers Eternal X-Men arc that's coming up. Everything springboarded from here, at least on the Eternals and the Avengers side with that whole arc. You're going to get a map of what's going to go on. Is every single...
single moment, every single issue perfect? No. But I think if you have fun with it and you let yourself go along for a really fun, wild ride, you're going to see a lot of stuff that is going to be shaping the Marvel 616 universe for probably years to come. Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now, I love that Avengers coverage we've been doing with Nathan and TK. It has been so awesome to get to dial into what has essentially become to us a roadmap that the Marvel Universe has been following. You know, something pops up in Avengers like Nathan said, and then it gets a title or it becomes an event. And the other way in which the Marvel Universe has been moving forward the ideas on the page has been by creating complex arguments that, before you know it, you have so much to say that you kind of have to throw out the original script for the day. One of the things that we do when we make this show is we create a schedule, we figure out who's going to be on what book in what room, and then we have a discussion. And so many of us have been together for so long, and just about anybody who joins has been a listener before they've joined. So everybody's kind of got a good sense of each other, and you know, the room host usually just says, hey, I want to get a sense of how you guys feel about this overarching thing, and it gets the conversation going. And when we sat down to discuss Sabretooth number four by Victor Laval and Leonard Kirk, we had every intention of discussing Sabretooth, the title. But what wound up happening is we needed to discuss Sabretooth, the Krakoan civil rights case. It is so unbelievable the ways in which Victor Laval has pointed to this massive thing. Now, I get really heated, and I just want to preface with, I am not coming for Emma Frost. I do not think Emma Frost can fuck right off, but I do have some really intense feelings about the ways in which justice is metered in the Krakoan age. I just want to give a huge shout out to all three people in the room, Drew and Steven and Broadway, who I think has been on every bit of Sabretooth coverage at this point. It has just been incredible to get to work with these voices and to get to see the X-Men evolve with the world around its needs. Beyond that, I just want to remind everybody that we love making this show three times a week for you every week. MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and of course, XI4P Premiere Fridays. That's what you're listening to right now. You guys can check us out online at xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on Twitter. You can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we hope you guys enjoy this next segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, even the worst members of Krakoan society deserve the same level of justice that all citizens are entitled to. And until then, we'll see ya. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi, guys. Broadway. Um, you can find me on Twitter at B-Way3RD. That's B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. Hey, guys. I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Before we take any steps into the psychosis 
business of Sabretooth, as meticulously organized as it is, you know, Sabretooth has his issues, but they're not usually quite so bagged and boarded into short boxes, right? And my question for you guys is, who is your Sabretooth? Like, this guy sucks, you know what I mean? So like, who is your Sabretooth that you guys are here to talk about this book and this character? Well, I'm kind of with you on that. I usually think that he sucks, and I still think he sucks. I guess I'm here because I really want to know what the hell is happening with him in the pit. I was raised on the 90s cartoon, so I guess that's my sort of formative Sabretooth, but I also feel like it's really this one. I feel like it's the first time where he seems like more than just an animal, and there's some depth given there. He seems like a really compelling character while also being like god-awful. Yeah, my first encounter with Sabretooth was from the X-Men movies. To me, he was always just like asshole Wolverine. That's why I was kind of like pumped for this series is because it's, I've read him in other things, but it's really my first like deep dive into like Sabretooth and like try and expand his character a little more. So first of all, I have no use for Sabretooth outside of Leave Schreiber naked holding a cheesecake asking me how many slices I'd like. Amen. That's about all the use I have for Sabretooth. But Wait, if I had real? a secondary... yeah, Well, no, not most of it. You said that and my brain went, yes, yes. Yeah, right? That just feels yes. like a thing it should be. I'm it also does. a cheesecake fan. I'm also a Leaf Schreiber fan. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> now, my actual Sabretooth from the comics is going to belong to another character. We talk so much about how women were so, you know, at the end of the day, like viciously misused in comics for till the, this very second. And it's so frequently in the past was women were used as vehicles to further men's stories explicitly. Yes. And I can think of a time where actually it was the opposite. Sabretooth existed to further Blink in the Exile story. And while I have very little use for any version of Sabretooth, Mr. Creed is a version of Sabretooth that doesn't make me want to drill my own teeth out. So I feel like Leave Schreiber, Naked, Cheesecake, and also Mr. Creed. I am not about the revisionist history that he doesn't deserve to be there because quite frankly, he does. <laughs> like he's a horrible person that we have read decades of. So like this, I understand that in this new era, everyone's given a chance, but like he was also told not till anyone. So while it wasn't a law per se, it was still a rule that was set in place. He is seeing the ramifications of his actions past and present. You know what I mean? So this is uh, quite an interesting take on the, on the laws and everything. So I think that's actually the like the central tension that I'm really into. Sabretooth is a bad person, but as many people point out, like so is Mr. Sinister, right? I mean, like in New Mutants, we're sort of dealing with Madeline Pryor getting her first time to do whatever she wants, right? Meanwhile, like her abuser and twisted creator is like running the government. And so I, I think the point of the series is that like Sabretooth is bad, but also you have to then sort that out. You can't have Cassandra Nova on the Marauders, but Sabretooth goes to jail. And that same part of the reason for the rest of the cast is to take that same point and say, here are other moments where people have decided this person is bad and we are just going to remove them from the equation. And the question is like, what's the point of utopia? What's the point of liberation when you're still finding members of your own community to demonize and to not assist, to have all of this wealth and abundance, and yet it's not fit for these, I guess, six people. When we examine it within the context of 
of Sabretooth as a miniseries in response to X-Men as a line? The answer is clear. We have to reconsider how we apply villainy. We can't just think that it's like, I kind of feel like, you know, sometimes we get bear blindness and if it's like a big hot guy, we're like, oh, well, he's got a hairy chest. It's okay. But like, if he was ugly, we'd be like, no, he's the worst. Send him to hell. And I think because Mr. Sinister is sassy and because Cassandra Nova kind of looks like a shriveled raisin, we all just kind of root for them. I I mean, I personally think they should be, I mean, they are actively always evil. And if they were to try not hurting people, I'd be way more into it. But like, as soon as we go out of the the argument of this series in terms of the line, I fear that X-Men as a line does not have the conviction to follow through with the ideas set out by this title. If we need to then re-engage with how we think about people and their nature and their, you know, persistent patterns of behavior, we can't use one as an example of a moral reality that we avoid and then like make punchlines of it in other titles. It's actually the dangers of a title like Hellions. When you enjoy villain culture too much, it renders the argument of how do we rehabilitate people really difficult. I think that's a great point. There is a lot of as you said, nuance to be had, you know, when it comes to a lot of those characters. But with Sabretooth, I think the reason why I feel so strongly about him absolutely deserving to be there is because he, other than when he's neutered or he's a uh, creed from Ziles, who I love, the only one I like. I believe we mentioned Leave Schreiber. And Leave, oh my god, yes. And I just feel like he's so about wanton destruction. He just causes chaos for chaos's sake, right in your face, right in the character's face. There's not really a surprise to be had. Whereas you take Sinister, you take Cassandra Nova, and they're bone chilling. And regardless of, you know, how terrible they are and how much you want to root for them, they are a little bit more, in my personal opinion, compelling in the sense that they have that slasher quality to them that calculating you don't know when they're gonna do the thing you know so but with Sabretooth he's just in your face he's killed so many people he's killed so many of these people's families and it's just well he's kind of just still causing that chaos even in the pit which I still don't understand how (laughs) so yeah and he's been doing like the same thing for a while like he has always just been like that asshole Wolverine and I think it would be like nice now to, to see him go somewhere else I just read all of the issues of this because of the whole delay thing i couldn't even remember what happened in the first three issues so i had to reread them but in one of the issues there was like something where he mentioned like he wanted to go to space so i'm like well let's put him on a rocko because that actually like fits perfectly for his character like with the way he acts he's like very similar and could like get with their ideals and then you could develop him as a person more instead of just focusing on his aggression great idea i actually love the idea of him on a rocko i would also sort of point to what Benjamin Percy is doing with Omega Red, in part because that Benjamin Percy was sort of the means by which, if I understand this correctly, that Victor Laval was brought into the X office, and Percy has talked about, you know, Sabretooth and Omega Red being different mirrors for Wolverine. And I think that what we're seeing with Omega Red was that Beast's inclination was like, just throw him in the pit, just like Sabretooth. Whereas Sage is like, well, we can actually make use of this person. This person does have guilt. And I think my frustration 
Falcon with the way in which Sabretooth is treated is that it does not make use of Krakoa's greatest natural resources, which are its mutants. So, I mean, sending him to Araka would be fine, but there's also a party man that's like, you could just drop him on X-Force. Like, you know, you want to deal with Mikhail Rasputin? Drop Sabretooth in there and let him go wild, right? There's a place for everyone, but I think what Victor Laval is trying to get us to toil with is that, you know, you can make exceptions for Omega Red and you can't for Sabretooth, but it's because you've delineated that Sabretooth is not useful or Sabretooth has sort of stepped out of line, I think is the term he used when going through everyone's rap sheet. And I thought that to me is the core problem. It's not actually a problem of like this person's bad. Cassandra Nova is much worse than Sabretooth, like in terms of objective horror and brutality. Yeah, literally. I was going to say objective horror. I mean, and if if I may, because I'm totally with you, I think because I'm hearing everything you guys are saying. And my first thought had been, yeah, you know what? Offer him Araka because you can't excommunicate him and make him Araka's problem. The Arakans don't deserve that. Like they are not your penal colony. You can't just beam your unwanteds there. So if he chooses to go there. I don't think he would be unwanted there because he has the same mentality as them. He, well, he It doesn't has, matter like, if he would be unwanted. It's more like we can't make it a habit of sending our prisoners there. Yeah, Araco can't be and, in Australia. No, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he also would never want to go. Why would he ever go? Right, there's a level of spite that would make him want to stay. It's important, actually, for him to punish the Gracoans with his presence. I also don't know if the Iraqi would like him because he doesn't, like, they want to win war, but they're not just like mass murderers you know exactly they believe in honor and he would have to fight for his place there agreed agreed i do mean that instead of like prisons they really should input like a rehabilitation system where it's like okay a saber tooth you did this really shitty thing so like here these are your traits as like x-force would be good or like going to Araka would be good and just like go from there yeah i can see that as well it's funny because there was a lot of different fan speculation as to what the pit was you know there was does it really exist or is it really like they move them and then somebody approaches them and says, okay, this is how you're going to serve Krakoa. You're actually going to do missions for us. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Or is it really just like a place where, like you said, rehabilitation, where they go into a trance and they're meant to go through these like therapeutic sessions? What they gave us was like kind of just the most linear, linear, yes. And can I ask a question though? And this is not meant like shitty. This is meant like legit. I'm I'm really curious. Yeah, go for it. Sabretooth has betrayed literally every single person. I'm pretty sure including alternate versions of himself yes i cannot imagine sending Sabretooth in as a member of any team unless we've now like chipped him with a kill switch and then what the fuck is wrong with us right. we're chipping people with kill switches you're right the problem is Sabretooth puts us in a position where the minute we forgive him he senses it as weakness and i think the problem is Sabretooth and sinister and cassandra nova and the lot of them are by inherent trade untrustworthy because their untrustworthiness is part of their sales pitch. You know, it's Loki. Loki is a trickster. And I think in that regard, Sabretooth and Sinister and Cassandra Nova are tricksters. And right now, you know, Sinister's in vogue, but it's going to come a time where he's not again at some point for a while. And I just think the inherent trap of Sabretooth is the minute you trust him is the minute he senses that you've trusted him and now it's time to betray you. And that's like tough. Yeah, That's really tough. 
it's kind of like a catch-22 villain. So he is kind of like the perfect example to yeah. put someone in a pit. He, so, okay. So what is his skill set? He kills people. Cassandra mm, Nova Well, no, is... hold on. Go he ahead. compartmentalizes and is capable of functioning within military parameters with excellent precision. When we consider the fact that he operated within Weapon X, Weapon Plus chose him. And don't get me wrong. Weapon Plus does not have exactly the greatest history for... Uh... Anything. well put together yeah well put together no they had the best history of genocide but I yeah i mean all of it they have done all of it but the other side of things that i think is that weapon he is a precision skill person he is a brilliant sniper he has heightened senses he is an incredible healing factor and can endure you know great suffering the problem is he wouldn't want to use it for someone else but i from a utilitarian standpoint if you're telling me that is a character i can draft into a video game as long as you know power sets being equal yeah i mean Sabretooth has a ridiculously excellent power set how many characters on krakoa if we're including all of mutantum can just do what he does we can list between the four of us well over 20 characters who yeah, can but then emma frost can fuck off you know what i mean like then it's just telepathy and then it's just being super strong and then it's just you know you're not wrong it's just in comparison to the other characters that have been mentioned you know telepathy is coveted that that is why Cassandra Nova is there. Her mind is a weapon. You know, she is one of the most powerful telepaths on Krakoa. Then we have Sinister. He is a geneticist. You know, his yeah, their but let's skills... stop making ex- let's stop making exceptions no, for people no. who believe in eugenics. It's like... not, no, no. I'm saying that in terms of a story, like a story writer's, you know, use for these characters. Sabretooth, you guys said it. He always betrays everyone. And yes, he can he can absolutely decompartmentalize and do the thing that he needs to do but so do so many other characters that have very similar power sets and skill sets. Wolverine can do everything that Sabretooth does. X-23 can do everything that Sabretooth does. Domino, an expert sniper, you know, like we have so many characters that instead of this one character, we can get a team of, you know, and he's just so blatantly evil because it's it's not just him being like, he just wants to kill because he senses weakness in people. It's that he genuinely enjoys it and looks forward to it like but so does sinister and so does cassandra nova and we're just making exceptions because we think that they have more interesting avenues by which they murder and i think that's even the problem we have created compartments of villain culture by where that person's okay because even if they've extinguished 16 million mutants they are interesting and i think that's what this book is highlighting that we make exceptions for certain kinds of much worse murderers. And I just don't think, I mean, like, I'm not here to not allow anyone to be an ex-person. I just, I don't know. I think we have to stop performing Krakoan exceptionalism. And I find myself concerned for the number of openly evil people we allow within Krakoan infrastructure, while other people perceived to be evil who had not yet had a chance to betray Krakoa were deemed already betrayers and sentenced to the pit and that's really what this book highlights that the line cannot support you have sebastian shaw on the quiet council and one of the first things he does in marauders is betray krakoa and attempt to spike their greatest export to profit off of it right he categorically attempts to undermine the government he's serving on to profit off of it leading to him killing kate pride right and remember his punishment was a disability remember his punishment was being temporarily disabled. A 
and then still allowed to serve because he's understood to have skills, right? I mean, there are other people with, like, Bishop has very similar abilities to Shaw, um, but they've both been allowed to have roles because they have skills outside of those things. I think the complexity for Sabretooth is, again, there is the delight he takes in his evil, but at the same time, I, I, I have to wonder, obviously we have the Sinister and Cassandra Nova comparison, but then I also wonder what makes him different than any of the other Marauders, the OG Marauders, like the Sinister Marauders. I don't actually know what the objective difference in, I mean, I guess Grey Crow has like grown a bit tired of it all, but like, you know, I don't know that all of them have suddenly decided they're not great assassins anymore and aren't good. I don't know if you can be an assassin for years and then just be like, ah, I actually didn't like it the whole time. So like, I wonder even in that delineation, like we're separating this one person, this team that we have welcomed. And I think the real challenge for Krakoa, and I think also Victor Laval's challenge to our feelings about the carceral state are finding what are the actual grounding principles and if there is going to be hypocrisy or there are going to be exceptions can we live with those and that is also why he's putting people like Oya and Necra in there where we feel like ah I actually can't live with that exception but again that's not we don't apply that universally. I think it comes down to the spin you know we with Sinister with uh, Cassandra Nova with Grey Crow this is a new spin on those characters this is with Victor with, with Sabretooth this is just the same thing over and over and over again and it's kind of like Batman syndrome where like just take him out <laughs> but when did we see it he got thrown in the pit before he was given a guaranteed fresh start which everyone else was given I would actually say more than that, Sinister has attempted to make chimeras, which he wasn't supposed to be doing. He's been cloning people, which he wasn't supposed to be doing. And he's got some sort of Moira Pokemon save file. And like... <laughs> and he's definitely pulling the missing no trick. Yes, yeah, like, I mean, at the end of Immortal X-Men number three, he is at like the end of the line with scary god Exodus and is the Judas that they have to kill. He's Judas Prime. And so it's like, also, uh, Dr. Stasis is possibly him, some sort of what like you know what I mean like I'm I don't know if you can sit there and look at all of the shit that Mr. Sinister is up to and then be like but you know Sabretooth did kill a couple of those guys while helping to do the mission that got them to destroy the master mold, mother mold like I don't know I, I just it's very hard to, to buy those delineations for me honestly what they should have done is they should have just scared him a little bit and been like these are the rules now you have to follow them I agree with that I, I listen I am not trying to advocate that Cassandra deserves this chance or Sinister deserves to be out. I, I do think that they're absolutely evil, terrible people and deserve whatever is coming to them. I do enjoy reading Sinister more than uh, I enjoy reading Sabretooth because I think that there's more political game being played. But at the same time, yeah, they, they're all terrible and should all go in the hole. At, at least as far as like showing some kind of redemption. The quality of mercy as it exists within the realm of X-Men shaped by Charles Xavier. Mm -hmm. So the problem becomes, number one, we have to consider that there are contextual decisions made by Marvel, right? So like the X-Men versus the Micronauts miniseries is four issues from like 1986 or so. And uh, yeah, I mean, literally, Xavier tries to psychically rape Danny Moonstar. He corrupts her for her innocent virtue and turns her into a bad girl. Like this is on page, but because it's Micronauts, they 
They can't reprint it. Since they can't reprint it, they just don't bring it up. The only time it's ever mentioned is when it's the reference to the psychic projection of Dark Xavier. The thing better known as the evil Xavier from the animated series is actually from X-Men versus the Micronauts 1 through 4. Is that the one so, with the cape, the Xavier with the cape from the 90s yeah, series? Because this whole thing is from the moral relativism of a man whose scruples are at best melting ice cream on a hot day, the difficulty becomes who he chooses to hand wave the actions of. I understand that, you know, it's your last actions that count, and the complex narrative of who a person is needs to be considered, but the compromises that Xavier finds himself willing to make for the quote-unquote betterment of mutant kind often seem like structured political moves, not like well-thought socialist platforms. That really does mean that he's not trying to lead the group from within as a member of a society trying to thrive, but rather is trying to hold together the structure of a government that he believes is the best thing for them. That is little better than a monarchy, even when he pretends there's 12 of him all doing the same thing. And, you know, Magneto, Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, Emma Frost, these names have all done very questionable things. And the decision for these people to be forgiven really does seem to stem from Charles. So it's almost as if Charles has said he has room for one savage, feral, ex-creature man in his world, and it's Wolverine. Since that takes up all of his parenting skill, it's as if he's decided that it's okay to turn everyone against Sabretooth, because his is the vote that decides who stays. This man has decided Sabretooth is going to be seen this way, and that's considerable. I have to firmly agree. You see the way that Xavier was willing to not resurrect his own son because he was quote-unquote a liability, right? I think that for me, I'm, you know, as somebody who's like generally into kind of prison abolition, like I can't tolerate the pit because it's a political institution masquerading as a neutral institution. So if we can get into the data page, the data page is a masterpiece, but it's from Third Eye's perspective. And I do appreciate that so many of these issues engage with different perspectives, right? Like Melter, Melter's story with Charles Xavier is like indicting of Charles more so than I think he thinks. But here we get Melter talking about what everyone did wrong. And it's from his perspective. But I think what's really important is that he wrote the first law, which was make more mutants, because he was trying to get people to recognize that they were creating lots of orphans and not taking care of them. And those could potentially become saber in the future, filled with rage and pain and trauma, while in paradise, no less. And so it's like even someone's attempt to prevent something like saber from happening is weaponized against them because Charles said you declined the birth rate. And it's like, yeah, but for good reason. So I don't know. I just, I, I can't like sort of disentangle the political elements of that from the objective fact that what Third Eye did was correct. And there's a very fascinating juxtaposition with what's going on in Legion of X where like we get to see Nightcrawler's notes on the laws and how he's interpreting them, you know, in the Book of the Spark. And again, you know, he's a political actor. So his interpretation of those laws, just like Orisarada's interpretation of Iraqi laws is important. And it doesn't mean they're like wrong necessarily, but they're coming at it with their own perspective and politics and figuring out how to marry those things with some sort of universal principles or, you know, not being so narrow in the interpretation that getting people to use condoms breaks the law is like a very difficult thing to do. Throughout this series, it seems like it's Xavier who does a lot of the condemning and it seems like it's not really like a council vote. It's just an Xavier or I think with a couple of them, 
it's like Xavier and just Xavier and Magneto. And it's kind of like, to me, it seems like it was just him. And that kind of makes it seem like he's like the dictator of the island. And even like, even though they do have this council, he does have the final say at the end of the day. And it's radicalizing. Like, yeah. that, like that's the crazy thing. And I think that's also the sort of meta commentary from Victor Laval on prison abolition. Because like, guess what? Recidivism is real. But it's like, yeah, you send people in these places and often they become more radicalized. They become more hostile to whatever institutions they feel have underserved, if not abused them. And to interact with the Xavier is the one who does the condemning and the idea of these places that we drive these people is so dehumanizing and radicalizing and is a, I think it comes down to, for me, that we make a lot of jokes that Xavier is psychically controlling people, but he doesn't fucking have to. He has the cult of personality. It's called the X-Men. He no longer has to psychically control a single fucking person for his one eyebrow to send it in whatever direction he wants it to go. So the idea that anybody has a chance, that's, I mean, that's the goddamn point of Inferno, isn't it? One person had to work so hard to come up one vote against Xavier. One time. It took everything Mystique had. It took a once in literally 10 lifetimes occurrence destroying a perfect dream of a future for someone to overtake this man's fucking vote. What choice does anyone have of recidivism when Xavier casts his finger? I don't think anyone does. His gavel is a death sentence at the same time. And do you see this in the conversation between Doug and Sabretooth? Because immediately Doug says, we were being kind to you, right? Like he's speaking as a sort of Xavier student, right? That like Sabretooth is misbehaving and Sabretooth is like, no, you could have done something. If you wanted to be kind, you could have said no, but you did what you were told. And now people upstairs are finding out what you guys have done to me and they're not happy about it. And once he says that and Doug sort of recognizes the scale of the potential problem of sort of revolutionary activity for the folks bound to the pit, he changes his mind and lets Sabretooth out. But there's something really powerful about that, that Sabretooth has to, has been enacting this plan, which all it is is telling the truth. All he is is letting people know that there are always people down here who, you know, have family, whether chosen or otherwise, that care about them and say, yeah, I'm sorry, you're not sentencing Oya to forever in darkness. That's crazy. She's one of the first mutants born after the decimation or sort of, I guess, awakened, activated after the decimation. It's like, yeah. The lights, yeah. That's why the sign off for this show is keep your mutant light lit, your Cohen gateway open. That's literally why that's this show's sign off. And yet she's chucked down there. And so there is this sense that like, yeah, like the populace is not with that. And once Doug becomes aware of the gravity of the problem they have, he's like, no, you're right. But he comes in hot because he's been sent by Xavier to be, I don't know, some sort of lawyer. I mean, no matter what, he's empowered by X, you know what I mean? Yes. But he's there on behalf of the state, right? Like that is his role is to come in on behalf of the state, I guess, negotiate with Sabretooth, but it's all on Xavier's behest. But Doug also knows on some level that Xavier beyond that bullshit. He's aware of the Moira of it all, at least. I mean, Little Puppet Sheriff is so proud of his badge, but like at the end of the day, he knows their strengths. And that's the general complication. Man, I just want to thank you guys so much for the complexity of this discussion. I think it would be great if we had a little bit more nuance when it came to the laws. And that could be what we're aiming for here in this series. It's just going a roundabout way of getting there for 
for me. Um, I agree. I think that on a certain level, I think that Krakoa needs a constitution. And yes, that's me being like a political science nerd. But I think they need to outline what rights mutants have, what is the process, and then sort of build laws around that. Here is your social contract as a citizen of Krakoa. And now we are building these laws, but they have to work in concert with those constitutional rights. So if, you know, you have a right to due process, you can't just chuck somebody in the pit for saying you guys shouldn't like abandon your babies. That is the challenge. I also think the challenge that has been sort of ruling underneath everything is that uh, since the X-Men, since Gene and and Scott formed the new X-Men is that Krakoa is, I guess, autocratic is the right word. Like it is just ruled by a 12 person council that is unelected. And that is not sustainable for a complex group of people, especially ones who are traumatized. And I don't think that Sabretooth is a good person by any measure. But I do think that like everybody, Scott has killed Professor Xavier. You know what I mean? Like, and so if that can be forgiven by Xavier himself, like what what is owed to Sabretooth? I think that is the, the question here. And, and Sabretooth being a proxy for all mutes, what is owed to them if this is supposed to be the promised land for a broken people? Thank you.